Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Welcome to the Least of These Podcasts. We reach out to those the world has forgotten. If you'd like to know more about us and how you can donate to help us fulfill our mission, go to hisloveministries.net. Thank you very much and God bless you. And he walks with me and he talks with me. hear the sound of his voice. Amen. Well, today we're going to be back in Romans chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 14, and I think we'll get through verse 18 today. So when we look at that today, what we want to see is God's mercy in this picture here today. Believers are objects of God's mercy. Remember the book of Romans is really about the fact that that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God through faith is being revealed, right? Only God's righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none does good, no, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but he says the free gift of God is eternal life, right? So the first most of the three chapters, the first three chapters up to verse 20, say that we're all of sin and come short of the glory of God. When we get to verse 21, he begins to say that, you know, there's a righteousness that comes from God. And he demonstrates his righteousness. And chapter 4, he talks about David and Abraham, how they were saved by faith. And then, of course, when he gets to chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified or saved by faith, we have what? Peace with God, right? We're no longer enemies of God. Talking to some people the other night that the Bible says that we're enemies of God before we know Christ. People say, well, I'm all right with God. God's all right with me. Well, if you don't know the Lord, you're not all right with him and he's not all right with you. And uh, you can't say what a friend we have in Jesus. You can't say that he's my father. You can't say that, uh, that he died for me. And so he tells us in chapter 5 how basically once we have salvation, he gives us 11 reasons in the first 11 verses why we can know that we can't lose our salvation, that we're eternally secure. And in chapter 12 to the end of the chapter, he says says basically that Adam lost everything and by his many offenses, many died, and by one man's act, many will be saved, right? Chapter 6, he tells us, reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And Paul says in chapter 7, things I want to do, I can't do. But the things I don't want to do, I do those, right? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then when he gets to chapter 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he basically goes on to give us that glorious chapter on the eternal security of the believer. And he ends by saying, if God be for us, who could be against us? And that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Then we get to chapters 9 through 11. And of course, we're in that section now on verse 14 today. 
But remember, he begins to talk about, well, if God promised the children of Israel, they were his children and he was going to take care of them and he was their cho- they were his chosen people, then how come so many of them aren't trusting Christ? How many, so many of them don't want to know the Lord if he's, Jesus is really the Savior and all of these things? And so Paul starts out by talking about how his heart yearns for the people, how he would even go to hell for the sake of the, the people of Israel if it were possible. But you can't lose your salvation, so he can't do that. And then the last time we talked about how God chose the people and what he was doing was choosing two nations. He chose, first of all, he came in in verse 6 through 13, and he came in and he said, not all of those who are of Abraham are Abraham's seed. Because remember, Abraham's seed are the people that ultimately really truly are the ones who trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so he begins talking about Jacob, or excuse me, Isaac and Ishmael. And then he talks about how God chose Isaac for all the, the, the line of the Messiah to come through. And then he began to talk about how he went between Jacob and Esau and he chose Jacob and Esau became an ungodly man. And we finished up saying that God only chooses those who choose him and he only rejects those who reject him. And we don't know how all that works, but somehow or another the Bible says God's sovereign, but man's responsible. So look at verse 14 today through about 18. But remember, it's all about God being sovereign, but like I said, somehow or another the Bible says we're responsible. So believers of the object of God's mercy is what we shall call this section. He says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that the name of, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. So let's stop right there. So believers are the objects of God's mercy. And sometimes the question arises, is God fair when he chooses or somebody else chooses one group or one people over another? Paul's going to deal with the justice of God in this section. And he reverts back to his diatribe style. Remember the diatribe is basically it's a question and answer format. But what it does is it's kind of like you're imagining this imaginary heckler, heckler in, the, in the audience. And what Paul has done in the past is he's had all these questions come at him. And so through the inspiration of God, he writes down in this section of scripture, he's going to write down and tell us, these are the questions people are asking. These are the things people are saying. And I'm going to ask the question and I'm going to answer the question just as if there was somebody in the audience asking these questions. So what he first of all does is he begins to say in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? And he says that many times over in chapter 2, chapter 3, a couple times, two or three times. And then over in chapter 6 and chapter 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So the first question he asks, is there unrighteousness? 
righteousness with God. And so we got to remember that salvation is only possible through the mercy of God and the grace of God, right? God is the one who allows us to trust Christ. If, if, if the truth be known, every single one of us, I've said it over and over again, that all of us really deserve death and hell and damnation. That there's none righteous, no, not one, right? So if nobody's perfect, nobody's righteous, and the standard is as God is completely perfect, completely righteous, completely holy, and that he says that only if you're completely righteous, completely holy, completely perfect, can you get into heaven, then that leaves all of us in trouble, right? The only one that was able to, of course, he was God, but you remember the rich man asked Jesus, he says, good teacher. And Jesus didn't say he wasn't a good, but he says, why do you call me good? And he's what he's saying is, do you realize that I'm God? Because there's only one good one, and that's God, right? And he says, do you realize I'm God? Why are you calling me good teacher? There's none good. And so he wants to know, does the man realize who he is? So as we look at this section, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And he says, certainly not. That word certainly not, remember it's that term, meganoite or something like that. I don't know exact Greek pronunciation. What he says is that's the strongest negative there is in the Greek. It means certainly not, God forbid. May it never be so, and, and it's translated in different translations that way. And basically, he, he would say in today's modern vernacular, no way, Jose, right, you know. But bottom line is, is Paul saying, absolutely not, God is not righteous. And why would you even begin to ask a thing? And so what he's going to do is he's going to use Moses and he's going to use Pharaoh as proof that God can do what he wishes and dispensing his grace and mercy so nobody deserves god's mercy and nobody can condemn god for his choice of israel or his bypassing of other nations and i still believe that this section of scripture kind of continues on what we were talking about before and like i said that some people call this individual election and they it's a thing called calvinism and maybe you've heard of it maybe you have the five points of calvinism Calvin didn't even believe in those when he was alive, but somebody came along based on what he wrote, and they came up with these five points. But it, it goes back a long way, all the way back to Augustine back in 500 A.D., some of those beliefs, and it really comes out of the Catholic background is what it does, some of these beliefs. And they believe that Israel's been replaced by the church and all these things, and the Catholic Church is the only real church and all of these type things but what happens is they say this is individual election that God is choosing some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell but I don't believe that and so what I believe is what he's done is as we saw last week that he was choosing people uh, he was choosing nations and he chose between one nation for the promised seed to come through out of two different women because uh, Isaac was married to two different women and there's these two children there's Isaac and Ishmael and there's Jacob and he married Rebekah and Leah and it says that he loved uh, Rebekah but he hated Leah and that meant that he loved Rebekah so much that his love for Leah was as nothing, right? We talked about that last week. And so these two children were born. He said the older shall serve the younger. And what was happening here was God first chose between two women which nation 
that the Israel, the seed of Jesus Christ, would come through. And then he chooses from two children that are twins out of the same womb. And I think kind of what he does here in this section, as I was thinking about it last night, in the middle of the night, I was thinking, okay, what, what he says here is he's going to begin to choose between two nations here. The Egyptians are against God and Moses is for God. And so he's choosing again and he's kind of going out the other direction again, away from families, but out to different nations and different people. And so what does he say? He says, is God unjust? Not at all. So the next thing he says here in verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And don't get me wrong, what, what he's doing here is he's going all the way back to Exodus chapter 32, if you know anything about that section of Scripture. Back in Exodus 32, what's happening is God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. And he's up on the mountain with them. And if you remember, while he's up there giving the commandments, what's happening down below? The people are committing all this sexual immorality and worshiping idols. And remember Aaron, Moses' brother, he says, give me all your earrings, give me all your gold. And he creates this idol, this bull, this calf. And he says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. After all the signs and wonders and things that they've seen, all of a sudden Aaron says, this is your God. He's the one that brought you out. And he makes this calf of gold. And they're down there committing all this idolatry. And God says, go down to your people. And he goes down. And that day, what God does is there's 3,000 people that die. And I believe those 3,000 people were probably the leaders of that group, right? And so what he's referring back to here is to that section of Scripture where he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Is what he did is I believe he killed the worst of the worst people. Even though every single one of those people deserved to die, what did he do? He only killed 3,000 that day, right? Remember... Moses wanted to die in their place, right? He says, let me die in their place because God says, I'll wipe out the whole nation and, and I'll just start a new group of people with you. And we remember we talked about that a few times before when we were introducing this whole section that, that Moses says, no, I'd rather die for these people. And he says, if you won't go with us, then we don't want to go because the people will say, well, he brought them out of Egypt just to kill them out in the wilderness. That He couldn't deliver them, so he just killed them. And so God has compassion on whom he has compassion and he has mercy on whom he has mercy. Remember the mercy is really, I don't know if when you were kids, but when we were kids, somebody, they get you down and they were, you know, they were holding you down or whatever and they were either beating on you or messing with you or tickling you and you go, mercy, you know, and you cry out and say, okay, you got me, I deserve this, but don't give me what I, don't, what I deserve, right? And so basically mercy is not giving us what we do deserve, which is death and hell and damnation. And grace is the other side. It's giving us what we don't deserve, right? And so what he says here is that God, he had compassion on those other people, but he could have basically killed everybody. And maybe they weren't more wicked. Maybe they weren't more God, less godly. But I, I believe in my heart that these are probably the leaders of that idolatry down there while Moses was on the mountain. 
But regardless, everybody deserved to die, but God only killed 3,000 out of three to 500,000, maybe a million people. I don't know how many, you know, when you read the numbers of how many people, seems like there was two or 300,000 men when they counted them, but there could have been upwards of a million people that were in that desert for those 40 years when God put them out in that desert. And then he gets to verse 16, and he says, so it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God that shows mercy. And so basically what he says is that God is not under obligation to show mercy or grace to anybody. And remember he said that back in John 1, it's not of you know, him that wills or him who runs, but as many as believed on him, to him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, right? It's not of us. Like I said, I've said it over and over and over again. Most religions teach you got to do something to get to heaven. But Jesus Christ teaches it's finished, it's done, that we can't do anything. And because of that, people's pride says, I want to do something to get to heaven. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. If we all could brag about something we did to get to heaven, what would end up happening? When we got there, it'd be just like earth down here. We'd all be bragging about what we did to get there, right? But when we get there, all we can say is, oh, thank you, God, because you did it. I trusted in you, but you gave me, you gave me salvation, and you showed me who you were. If we insist on receiving just treatment from God, all we would really get is condemnations because people say, well, I, I want what I deserve, you know. I like these lawyers on TV. Get what you deserve, you know, call so-and-so or call me or call this and get what you deserve. Listen, we don't want what we deserve because we all deserve death and hell and damnation. Uh, we don't want that. But God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he gives us a second illustration here. First, he gave us the illustration of Moses and the people, how he had compassion on Moses and certain of the people. But here in this next section of Scripture, he's going to show us that, that Pharaoh became an object of his wrath. And he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So this is a very difficult section of Scripture. But when we look at this section of Scripture, like I said, people are saying this is individual election. But when, I, when you read this, and I was reading some of the commentaries and some of the people that know Greek, like I said, I don't even hardly know English. I can't hardly speak it, and I don't really know all the parts of that because they didn't really teach English when I was going to school at that time. They taught all this literature stuff, but they didn't teach the parts of the English language. And you got to know all that before you can really learn how to read all the Greek and do, not really to read it, but to be able to dissect and put it together. But basically what the commentators say, the people that are the Greek experts, what they say is this term, I have, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. This phrase, I have raised you up, it means I have allowed you to remain. In other words, 
God could have killed Pharaoh a long time ago because of his wickedness and his evilness and his rebellion against God. If you remember in Exodus chapter 9, over and over and over again, Pharaoh opposed God, right? Remember Moses and his brother Aaron were sent to Pharaoh and and God basically says that I'm I'm basically going to harden his heart But what is he doing? He's speaking to his intention. But what I understand in the way the scripture reads is God doesn't harden people's heart unless they first harden their own heart. When you look at the section of scripture, what you're going to see is that, remember we said in Romans 1.18 at the end of the section, it says, because they, they knew there was a God and they didn't worship God, nor were they thankful and they worship the creature rather than the creator. It says, for this reason God gave them up. For this reason God gave them up. For this reason God gave them over. In other words, these people have already turned away from God. They've already hardened their heart. They're already doing the things that they're not supposed to do. And then God, what he does is he turns us over to us, to our own desires. Is basically what he does. He says, these people want to do these things. And he says, well, this is what I'll let them do. And that's how we get to have such horrible people sometimes that do such horrific things like Son of Sam and some of these people have done some horrible things that you can't even mention what they do. What he does is he uses Pharaoh as an illustration. Pharaoh is a is an Egyptian and Moses is a Jew. Pharaoh was a Gentile and Moses was a Jew but yet both were sinners and both were actually murderers. Remember Moses killed a guy <laughs> when he was in Egypt? And he hid the body, and the next day, these two guys, these two Jewish guys are fighting, and he says, y'all don't fight, you know, and the guy says, why, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And then he realizes that he, he, it was known, he thought nobody had seen him, and so what does he do? He leaves Egypt, and he goes, hides in the wilderness, and that's when he meets his wife and all of that, and sees God in the desert, and God says, come and set my people free. And so basically... What's happening here is God does not harden anybody's heart who's not first hardened himself. He says, a person may choose to drink poison or he may choose not to, but if he chooses to drink it, the inevitable consequences are going to follow, right? And God's not unjust because he allows this process to continue. And what another man said was God's hardening does not then cause spiritual insensitivity to the things of God. What it does is it maintains people in the state of sin that is already part of their character, right? There's at least 15 times in chapters 7 through 14 that it talks about the hardening of God. And I'm not going to read all of what happens, but... It's been said that the same sunlight that melts the ice also hardens the clay, right? What happened is, you know, what he does is he, he speaks to Pharaoh and he gives Pharaoh an opportunity because when they first start out, he says, you know, let us go three days out in the wilderness and then we'll come back. And what God is doing is kind of giving little small steps to Pharaoh and he's giving him an opportunity to do what's right. He wasn't being deceptive about that, but he was trying to give him little small steps, you know? Not just let my people go, but let us go three days into the wilderness. Sometimes when you talk to people, you don't want to tell them everything you're going to do, but you start them out, well, well, can we do this first? And then once you do that, then maybe they're more acceptable to what you're going to do beyond that, right? 
But when you look at it in Exodus 4, God says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And when you read in these other sections, it says that Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord has said. That's Exodus 7, 13. 14 says, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the, go, let the people go. Verse 22, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Exodus 8, 15. When he saw there was a relief, he hardened his heart. 8.19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard. 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his heart again, and he would not let the people go. And then in chapter 9, it says that the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Chapter 9, he says, verse 34, and when Pharaoh saw the rain, the thunder ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart and his servants. And in chapter 9, verse 31, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the children go. And in chapter 10, verse 1, and it finally says, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So how many times did Pharaoh harden his heart? I just read quite a few, right? I don't know how many it was. And in chapter 10, verse 20, it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 14, verse 4, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 14, verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So basically what happened is Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then what happened? God came in and allowed it to get harder and harder and harder, right? And that's what happens is, is the Bible talks about that our heart and our conscience can get so seared that we won't do the things of God. We can get so hard that we will never turn to God. And that's the scary thing. And I've heard of that happening before. People say, you leave me alone, God, and I'll leave you alone. And I've heard of people saying that walking out of a church service and then that night they die. I know of a lady in a nursing home that, and she said, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew, you know, because I had these two ladies visiting. And she said, I'm a Jew, I'm a Jew. You know, God's been good enough for me. I don't want to know anything about Jesus. And that same night, she fell in, in her room in the nursing home and it hit her head on the tub and she died. You know, I've heard of people going out and getting car accidents. Heard of one lady way out in the boondocks that she told a preacher when he came to say her, Pastor, I told the Lord a long time ago to leave me alone and I'd leave him alone. She says, I can't be saved. She basically said, I'm at the place where I don't want to. I can't be. I don't want to. You know, the Bible says he's not willing that anybody should perish. But when people want what they want, God says, well, if that's what you want, I'll turn you over to it. That's a scary thing. God's hardening then is an action that renders a person insensitive to his word, to God. And then if not reversed, it does result in eternal damnation. That can be reversed. People can turn back to God. Some of the people sometimes have said in the places I minister in jails and prisons, well, I went down, 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 and, and can I come back up again? I said, just as you went down, 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 I said, you can come back up, up, up towards God as he forgives you and saves you if you just turn to him. Here's the bottom line. Paul didn't mention that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but the point Paul makes is that God can freely and justly extend mercy or not extend mercy to those who deserve his judgment. And I'll say it again, what we keep saying 
that the reconciliation of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is beyond our power. The Bible states and emphasizes both, and it leaves them right there. And we would be wise if we did the same. You know, when you start lining out things and you start adding, what I think you do is you begin to add the Scripture. Because there is not anything written between verses of Scripture. But some people, by reading between the lines, they decide that the Bible says this or it doesn't say that, and they make the Bible say what they want to do. And they line out all these things of theology that the Bible never says. And if the Bible doesn't say it, I think it's at least three times that the Bible says, do not add to my word nor take away from my word, or I'll take your name out of the book of life, which means I won't send you to hell because you don't mess with God's scripture. You don't mess with God's stuff. Basically, there's a couple of lessons here. Number one, it's foolish to test God's patience. You know, we don't want to try God and test him, and that's what Pharaoh was doing, and, and these people that were in the wilderness that kept over and over and over again testing God, trying God. Remember all the signs and all the wonders and all the miracles he did out in the wilderness, and yet they, they kept turning on God and saying, you know, did you bring us out in the wilderness, let us starve to death? Did you bring us out in the wilderness to let us die of thirst? And all these things. And I mean, 10 times God showed Pharaoh who he was and how mighty he was. And all these nations had already heard. I mean, Rahab the harlot and all these other nations, Joshua, when they did all this stuff, they had heard all the mighty works that God had done. And yet people still hardened their hearts. It's amazing to me in the book of Revelation, it says there's going to be 100 pound rocks falling from the sky on people and killing them because they don't want to turn to God and they're saying, you know, they're basically blaspheming and cursing God as these rocks are falling on them. And they won't turn to God. That doesn't make any sense to me. But that's the way people are. The second thing is it's unbelief to doubt the love of God. I mean, the Bible says it over and over and over again that God is love, right? That he poured the love of God out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us, Romans chapter 5, verse 5. That this is love that he gave himself for us, right? And we love him because he what? First loved us. And over and over and over again, the Bible says that God loves us. And God so loved the what? The world, not just certain individuals, but he loves everybody. And if we don't turn to Christ, it's because we didn't want to. And then last, we have to ask ourselves, and I believe, hopefully, prayerfully, everybody in here, I believe, is at this point, but we always have to ask ourselves, are we really, truly believers in Christ? Are we just trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Because Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die, then to judgment. You know, you don't want to be standing before God one day as Jesus said to some of the people. And he said one day the people say, well, we did signs and wonders and miracles. See, they're dependent on what they can do, not of him who runs or him who whirls. But they're saying we did all these things and God's going to say, hey, you workers of evil, iniquity, depart from me. I never knew you. That's going to be a sad day for people one day that don't know the Lord and they say, well, you know, I did something and that's the reason I'm here. 
And so many people, unfortunately, that's why there's not as many people here. Some people, the groups, religions, and people, they think they can do something to get to heaven. And they will not come and hear it's a free gift. As I said, the Bible says it's uh, basically a free free. He says it's a free gift. Free means it's a gift, and gift means it's free, right? So he's saying it's a free free. So well, let's close, and, and let's just pray for all these folks that are not willing to hear, not willing to come, that Lord would soften their hearts and that they wouldn't continue to get harder and harder. Father, we just are so thankful for your word. We lift up your name, and you said that you raised up Pharaoh. You could have killed him, but you gave him ten opportunities, Lord, and then even that wasn't enough, and then he finally chased the Israelites down to the sea and drowned with all of his people because they would not look to you and be forgiven and be saved. So, Father, I pray that, that folks in this facility and all across this city and this county and this state and this nation, Lord, that people will begin to turn to you, Lord, that they would hear your word, they would hear your voice, they would repent of their sins, Lord, and even us as Christians, God, we have judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And Lord, we have gone a long way from where we're supposed to be. I pray that we as the church would repent and turn back to you, Lord, and begin to do the things that we have done. You said repent and come back to your first love. Father, we just ask that you would do these things in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake alone. Amen. Hi, I'm Marty McKenzie with His Love Ministries. Please help us reach out to those the world has forgotten. Everyone we minister to is locked up in some way, shape, or form. Those in the nursing home facilities are locked up in bodies that do not work in a wheelchair or in a bed. We minister to children and youth who are locked up because of behavioral problems. Some have told us we want to have a real family because their parents have lost or given up custody of them. Other kids are locked up because they've committed crimes. We also minister to those locked up at the jails and the prisons, to those locked up in addictions, to drugs, alcohol, depression, and suicidal thoughts, to those locked up in a variety of other things that keep them from becoming who Jesus wants them to be. He came to give us abundant life, joy, and set us free, and these people that we minister to are not free. Our desire is to show them whatever their background, no matter what they've done, to see how much God loves them. We seek to help them receive forgiveness and freedom from their sin in Jesus Christ. We minister in the local area of Savannah, Georgia, and surrounding Effingham and Chatham area. We have recently expanded our ministry to the Lexington and Columbia, South Carolina area. We do over 2,000 services every year. We hope and pray that you will support us in some way that so we can continue our mission. Go to hisloveministries.net and click on the Donate Now button or send it via regular mail to Post Office Box 1881, Lexington, South Carolina, 29071. We hope and pray that you will do that. Thank you and God bless you. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John 832.